Thank you, Laurel, very much. Our church has only that to offer, folks. Jesus paid it all. And so if you're visiting here with us for the first time, uh, we unapologetically, unapologetically say that's all we have. It's something that was given to us as a gift. And so uh, we deeply appreciate you coming here this morning, and we would love to give you a gift uh, and have a record of your visit. And so at this time, uh, we're just going to ask the ushers to come down, and, and if you would just let us know that you're here for the first time or you haven't received a, a gift from us before, uh, we just ask you to slip up your hand, and we won't embarrass you. Thank you, Miss Virginia, for doing that. I know right in the second row... Uh, so that's all the embarrassment you'll get, or perhaps maybe someone that uh, you uh, that brought you or you know could slip up their hand. We have a few here, a few there. Thank you for making the trek out uh, with us here on this cold January, almost turning into February kind of a day. So we're thankful for that, and we're thankful for your your presence with us this morning. Inside that gift bag is a card and we would at least uh, ask you to fill that out if we can be a help to you in terms of if you have any questions about our church or if you just want to know how to get more connected or learn more about us uh, that card is a is kind of like a little a little poke in that direction and uh, we we would welcome that poke for sure and however we can help befriend and connect you we would love to do that uh, for the sake of Jesus's name we would love to do that. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 147. As Pastor Mike already read for us this morning, this psalm is fitting for us, not because of the question in verse 17, who can stand before his cold, though it is rather cold outside. And I think we're going to get a little warm up and then we're going to get some more snow and some more cold. And so for us skiers in the room, we say hallelujah. Uh, and that's actually a reference to this psalm this morning, so we're going to look at that. But it is fitting for us because as Pastor Tim about to embark on a rather long journey, I suspect, in the book of Job, uh, that, that journey can be just like living here in northeast Ohio in the dead of winter. Right? I mean, we have beautiful four seasons here, and we enjoy them. But we kind of forget right about now what the warmth of the sun feels like. Yeah? And if you're like me, you kind of, and you're a slight, a slight, a light sleeper, and maybe don't have too much either, but a light sleeper, you, you kind of forget just how loud the birds can be in the morning to wake you up. They're coming back. Someday. <laughs> They're coming back to wake me up. And so I'm looking forward to the sun, and I'm looking forward to the birds chirping their loud chorus, saying it's time, get up. And just like that, the lessons of Job can sometimes feel like a long winter. And it is only when the clouds break and the sun shines through, only then in our lives do we begin to get a glimpse of just how good and how wise our God is. Well, Pastor Tim is going to talk about Job. But I thought that if Job is investigating God's wisdom and goodness when life is being lived underneath the storm clouds, this psalm, Psalm 147, is what it is like, investigates what it's like to live on the top side or on the other side of the storm clouds, on the sunny side. And so take a look with me at the structure of this psalm. First, we have to notice that uh, just like uh, this, this, the last few psalms in the Psalter, the beginning word and the end word are both what? Praise the Lord. That's one word in the Hebrew, hallelujah. And so hallelujah begins and ends this chorus, this song. And so... Uh, it is no wonder that we're talking about praise this morning. What does life look like on the sunny side of things? 
Okay, and so we see that, first of all, we have Alleluia at the beginning and at the end, and we see that in our English, praise the Lord. We also see that in verse 1, after Alleluia, in verse 5, excuse me, in verse 7, and then in verse 12, we have kind of a, a, a trifold division of reasons or exhortations, really, to praise God. You see that? In verse 1, for it is good to sing praises. In verse 7, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. And then in verse 12, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. So we have three exhortations that really break up into three reasons following why we should praise God. Verses 2 through 4 give the reasons why we should praise God there. Verses 8 and 9 give the reasons why we should sing to the Lord. And verses 13 and 14 again give the reasons why God is praiseworthy. And then following those reasons we have an application for our lives. And so in verse Five, we see six and five really we see that we're to trust the Lord in verse 11 we see that we're supposed to fear him and honor him and in verse 20 we're supposed to rely on his word so that's kind of a, a non-exciting structural point of this psalm but it's, it's so critical to see just how uh, how this structure really informs what we're going to do with this psalm today, okay? So we can see that there's a trifold division here of praising God, and really the beginning and the ending words remind us, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right, so if, it, if that's true, doesn't it seem odd a little bit and out of place for the psalmist to have such clear reminders to praise God when life is good. Right? I mean, it, we need the reminders when life is bad, right? But, but why, is, why is the whole psalm centered around this concept of praising God when we're on the sunny side of the storm clouds? Why is he giving us such a clear reminder? And we get that there's necessary reminders, like in the book of Job, right? but I believe that here the psalmist wants us to remember that that we need a reminder that our hearts, that our hearts, not our circumstances, are responsible for praising God. It's a simple, clear reminder, but we tend to get caught up in the moment, don't we? I do. We tend to get caught up in the moment all too often. And this psalm is reminding us that it is our hearts, not our circumstances, that praise the Lord. You know, your day, whether it's easy or hard, bad or good, pleasant or oppressive, is not the determining factor in your ability to praise and worship God. What the psalmist is asking here for is a heart that is careful to worship the Lord, certainly in the bad times, but just as much in the good and in the prosperous, and in the joyful times. And sometimes it takes just as much work to orient our hearts to praise him in the good as it does in the bad. And that is the point of this psalm. The point is a personal relationship with God is demonstrated by faithful, consistent praise to him. A personal relationship, right? We're very interested in that here. We're extremely interested in a personal relationship with God here. We don't need it through the church. We don't need it through somebody else. We can't do it through our own works. So how do we get a personal relationship with God? And one of the hallmarks of a personal relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ is demonstrated by faithful, consistent praise to Yahweh. It's a heart that is expressed by thankful worship. I want that kind of a relationship. Don't you? One that's willing to praise Him in the good 
and consistently praise him in the bad? Psalm 147 gives us three definitions or aspects of this personal relationship that really brings about a consistent, faithful worship of God. Okay? And so the first one we're going to see this morning is that an intimate relationship with God gives the afflicted reasons to praise Him. Well, Pastor Steve, I thought this was a, a psalm that had everything to do with living on the sunny side of the storm clouds. And it is, and we'll kind of unpack this in a little bit. But I want us to understand that an intimate relationship with God gives the afflicted reason. Only an intimate relationship with God gives the afflicted reason to praise Him. And perhaps you've been afflicted. No doubt, if you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, that will be true of you at times. And in those moments, we can either raise our fist and say, God, what are you doing? Right? Or we can bow our heart's knee and submit and say, you are the God of the universe. And so the actions of God here in verses 2 through 4, really demonstrate that he brings comfort to the afflicted. And there's going to be a reason why we praise him as the afflicted. But before we get there, I want to look at verse 6, okay? Because not every translation has the word afflicted here. All right, so in verse 6, this is where, <coughs> excuse me, the NASB records for us, the New American Standard, the Lord supports the afflicted. I was happy. I know Pastor Mike read from the, uh, I believe, the updated NASB, and they still have the afflicted uh, translated there, rendered there. Uh, you may have the English Standard Version or another version that has the word humble there. And no doubt those English words are relatively related, but they definitely dis uh, express different dispositions, don't they? I mean, it's one thing to say, Mrs. Hart is just over here smiling at me, and I certainly appreciate that. It's one thing for me to say, you know, I am humbled by Mrs. Hart's presence, right? Which would be a true statement often. But it's, a, it's another thing altogether to say, I am afflicted by Mrs. Hart's presence, right? Laura may say that at times, maybe John, probably not. Uh, it's probably the other way around, right, guys? It is, but... But that's, that's a totally different thing to say. And obviously I chose Mrs. Hart because no one's ever been afflicted by that dear woman's presence in their lives or her life. All right? And so the Hebrew carries a range of meaning. And so it certainly is a, is a worthy endeavor to translate it either afflicted or humbled. And the context really determines here the best English rendering. Okay? All right, I'm done with the technical stuff. It wasn't even that technical. But here's my argumentation for that. Verse 2, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds their wounds. See, it's more than just the reality that these folks are humbled. They certainly are humbled. But for us, we can certainly say, yeah, they were what? They were afflicted. That's, that's afflicted terminology, I mean, if I came to you and said, I just got done with Mrs. Hart, I need my broken heart healed, that would be one thing. Like, what in the world, Mrs. Hart, right? And even the New American translation, right? You know, she's listening for the rest of the time. Even the New American translation says, uh, renders the word oppressed, which would be another valuable word to use. But I've already mentioned that this psalm is really not focusing on the afflictions. We said at the beginning, right, this was the sunny side of the storm clouds. This psalm is not looking at the oppression. Right? This is looking kind of like in the rearview mirror of the afflictions and the oppressions. The psalmist is, certainly has a restoration in view here, right? He's building up Jerusalem. He's gathering, right? He's healing. He's binding. Right? And in fact, some believe that, that, this is mo that this psalm's context is most appropriately speaking in, in the terms of <coughs> excuse me, the post-exilic uh, uh, Jew all right, who, with Nehemiah, was rebuilding Jerusalem and its temple. Right? And, and that certainly may be the case. Right? So the translator's words 
I believe, are best understood here as affliction. But I want to ask us, what about the Holy Spirit's word, right? We approach Scripture in a different way than just man-written words, certainly written by men, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. So I had, I had a question as I was reading through this psalm and really meditating on it. And the question that kept on coming up to me is why in the world is the psalmist describing these people as afflicted? Because look at the context. Verse 6. The Lord supports the afflicted, but what? He brings down not the prosperous, not that everything's going right, but for the what? For the wicked. So why in the world do we have a counterpoint here between the afflicted and the wicked? What, what, what word would you think ought to go there? Right? The Lord supports the righteous. Right? But he brings down the wicked to the ground. And so why not the word righteous here? Certainly, we understand in the context that the righteous are in view, and we'll understand that. But why does the Holy Spirit primarily use the word afflicted or humble and not righteous? Now, I'm not going to argue from the sense of, of, of silence here. That's a terrible way to do hermeneutic. All right? But I think... As, as I'm really trying to wrestle with this myself, that there's a broader scriptural principle here for us to remember. Right? And, and I'm really hopefully going to tease this out in the, in the rest of verses 1 through 6. Right? But I want to set this up. Right? This is a reminder that the righteous often do what? Suffer. Jesus told us by the way he lived, by the way he died, by his words, that the righteous would suffer. This is also a reminder that this world, frankly, is just not our home. It's not our home. That's because God has quickened us, and he's made us alive, and he's changed us, and we're called his. And that merely breathing in this broken, decaying, spiritually dead world is at times going to present us with what? Afflictions. That's just how it's going to be. We're told that. This is a reminder also that the righteous are not held to a standard of perfection or else. Think about that. The psalmist isn't, isn't talking about how they're weak and how they've been, you know, unfaithful in all these kind of things. The psalmist, through the Holy Spirit, says the Lord is building and he's gathering and he's healing and he's binding. And so I think that that is a worthwhile thing for us to understand is God is not waiting around like some great, all great, uh, knowing security guard up in the sky with all the cameras. I went to a facility down in Florida this past month, and I have never noticed, but there are cameras everywhere I go. And it was kind of a little bit scary. Right? And sometimes we can kind of have, like, God as, like, this mall cop kind of looking at all the cameras of our life and he's just kind of waiting till we mess up and he's going to pounce and kick us out of the store so we can't spend any more money. That would be a good thing. God's not like that, folks. He's just not like that. He's waiting. And what does he want to do? He wants to build up. He wants to gather the outcast. He wants to heal the brokenhearted. He wants to bind wounds, not pick at them. That's our God. And that, my friends, is a praiseworthy thing for the afflicted. And you know, there's another great act of God along this line that reinforces the application that God isn't in the business of squashing us and 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 bearing the full weight of his righteousness onto us. 
He does that in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he doesn't expect us to be able to live that way today. And so the psalmist reminds us, look at verse 4. This is beautiful. He counts the number of the stars. You ever try to do that? I tried to do that with Stella. That's her namesake, right? Star, right? And, and so my oldest, she was like, Daddy, how many stars are there? Let's try to count them. And this was back in the day when she was really trying to, you know, show off her prowess of counting, right? Before she had to go to school and get a grade for it, right? And that messed everything up. But anyway, no, it didn't. So she's, she's out there. She's, she's looking around at, and, and trying to count the stars. And, you know, by the time you get to 30, you lose kind of track of exactly which stars you've counted and which stars you haven't counted. It's impossible, Science can't even do it. Try to count the number of the stars. But what else does he do? He gives each of them what? A name. You know, Laurel played beautifully for us. Jesus paid it all. And my wife... We're kind of in the trying to figure out a name for our fourth daughter. So we're kind of running out of, I say this, now we're getting all kinds of opportunities for more names. We're, we're running out of names, right, that we want to use. <laughs> and I think it was Elvia? El- El- Elvia. Elvia Hall wrote. So we're looking at a, uh, right? The last name, the, the name, the name has to end in a, uh, like Stella, Liliana, Olivia. Okay, so that's our little secret. All right, so there was Elvia. And Charlotte's like, there's a name. She wrote, Jesus paid it all. That was probably the only Elvia that ever wrote music. All right? Names are special, guys. That's my point. Is I, my wife and I have not delegated out naming our child. Right? We haven't delegated it out. As many opportunities as we get of feedback, and we love them, we put them on a list. We may cross, cross it off the list, but we put it on a list, right? As many feedback as we get, we don't delegate that out. Why? You don't just delegate out naming. God gives each star a name. And you know what? I want us to think about this in in relation to Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham is, is pulled out by God, and God says, Look at all those stars, Abraham. Stars are pretty important in an Old Testament context. And I think this would be something on the psalmist's mind when they think about, Look at all the stars in the sky and give them a name. What does God say to Abraham? Your family, your nation, the nation is going to be like the stars in the what? In the sky. They're going to be great. There's going to be a lot of them. And I'm going to know each and every one of them by my name. My name. It's a beautiful poetic picture of the covenant reality that God's people have. That through the affliction, God doesn't lose track. He knows each one. And some of you, I apologize, but some of you are going through afflictions. And you have demonstrated to me that you believe this. You've demonstrated to me that you trust that God knows who you are intimately and that you have a wonderful, praising, thankful relationship with him. Think about it. The picture of the brilliant stars seated firmly in the depths of the night sky is awe-inspiring. After all, we call it what? Stargazing. It's got its own name. You can get lost out there. Please, the next time that it's really cold, but there's not a cloud in the sky at night, freeze your little panties off just for a second. I was going to say a different word, and that word wasn't good either, and neither was that word. I'm a youth pastor, so you can't hold me too high to standards, okay? But, but freeze yourself off just for a little bit, because there is nothing like a really cold, cloudless night, especially if the moon is small or not present. 
The stars are amazing. And the sheer number of them is humbling. And the psalmist says, count them. Uh, God counts them and knows them. And he gives them a name. And look at verse 5. He says, great is our Lord, abundant in strength. He has the task to sit there and to be able to count them as if he has to do that. But if he had to do that, he would have the strength to be able to do it. And he also has the infinite wisdom. Verse 5, his understanding is infinite. So, God gives them all name, and he remembers these stars. The ones whom he is building up, the ones whom he is gathering, the healing of the brokenhearted, and the binding of the wounds, wounds, excuse me. The fact that God counts all the stars and gives each of them a name is a wonderful figure of an intimate relationship initiated by the creator of the universe. Think about that. The creator of the universe says, I'm going to have this kind of a relationship with you, specifically here to Israel. As we are in our present day New Testament context, to you, the church. Not the same thing, same application. Names are incredibly important. Incredibly important. And God's actions here demonstrate that he is more than a distant creator of the universe. He is a personal, caring, providing God that chose to intimately know you and me. And so an intimate relationship with God gives, us, gives the afflicted reason to praise him. And the character of God is also a source of hope for the afflicted. And so we're going to move on very quickly here. The character of God is described in two ways in verse 5. We already alluded to them, right? So we're trying to figure out how it is that we praise him. We praise him because we have an intimate relationship with him. And it's because of his character, his abundant strength, and his understanding that is infinite. His infinite understanding. So we see that God is sovereign. And we need to explore these character qualities in the context of the psalm. Excuse me. Uh, in the context of God's actions, if there is nothing stronger than God, and the psalmist asserts this to be true, then what happens to God's people, to you and to me, must be reconciled with the fact, right, that that is true. In other words, there's a little bit of tension. God is strong. No one's strong like him. He is sovereign. His infinite, his understanding is infinite. But what? We're still having to sometimes get built up. We're still having sometimes to being gathered as outcasts. We're still having problems, right? And we need our wounds bound. <laughs> In other words, right? Why could or would God allow this to happen? That question is often one that comes, especially if those who are trying to trust in God don't understand. Why in the world would God let this happen? If God allowed the captivity of his people, right, understanding the potential historic context here, and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, if he allowed that, he's strong. He's all strong. He's, he's infinite in his knowledge. Why in the world would he allow that? Can there be really hope? Go back to me with the picture of the stars for a moment. Between God's promise to Abraham, right, and the potential historical context of this psalm, right, post-exilic realities of, of rebuilding the temple at Jerusalem, how many times have God's people been described as afflicted? Think about that. Between the promise of God in Genesis 15 to Abraham, all the way to the potential historical context of this psalm. I mean, we've got Moses, right? We've got wilderness wanderings. We've got Joshua. We've got judges. We get into the kingdoms. And, and, and how many times, think about it, I'm not going to rehearse, how many times can God's people, probably well over the majority of the time, right? Well over the majority of the time. Now ask this question, how many of those times were God's people self-afflicted? 
because of their disobedience, because of their walking wayward from the God of the universe. So God knew his people intimately, like the stars in the sky naming each one. And that included all their failures, past, present, and future. Yet God does not seek to what? To crush them. To just put a weight on them that they cannot bear. Because if God's standard was perfection, who in this room can stand? Not one of us. And that's why everyone in this room claims what? The righteousness of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, why with the reality that God is strong and things can happen to us that aren't pleasant, why does it seem like the wicked are flourishing? If God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing, why do the wicked look like they're prospering and their ideas seem to have traction in our culture? I mean, look at that. Verse 6, he brings down the wicked to the ground. But you know what? That bringing down means that they're what? They're up here. They're high. And so it is for us, those who have an intimate relationship with God, to remember that though the wicked seem strong and mighty and influential and powerful and carry the culture of the day, both in academia and in politics and wherever it is, my friends, know this, that every single one who is not in Christ Jesus, the wicked, will be brought low to the ground. And so, if they're influential and high now, it's almost like the psalmist is saying, in terms of the first word and the, sec- and the last word of the psalm, hallelujah, don't let the wicked and what's happening in your life, let them steal your hallelujah. Don't let them take it away from you. Don't let them mute it. Don't let them change the conversation to something other than hallelujah. So I thought of a few ways that the wicked, that this world seeks to steal our hallelujah. Or maybe when we say or do these things, it reveals the fact that maybe our hallelujah is, is being stolen in the moment. And I'm guilty of most of these, okay? This is kind of like drawing the circle around myself here. So like, when I say, what in the world is this world coming to? My friends, we already know. Don't let the world steal your hallelujah. They consistently talk, or I consistently talk about the news instead of the what? The good news. Don't let the world steal your hallelujah. They see the problems, or I see the problems of the world greater than the promise of the world to come. My friends, don't let the world steal your hallelujah. We focus on what they don't have or what I don't have and complain and seldom verbalize thankfulness. My friends, don't let the world steal your hallelujah. Don't do it. Don't lose focus. This psalm is encouraging us to be people that are known for alleluias, dripping off our lips like honey. I'm concerned with where this culture is going. Sure. But we already know where the world is going, and we know its end. It's my prayer for me and for you in 2022 that those with whom we disagree with the most 
would hear the loudest, purest hallelujahs. So an intimate relationship with the Lord gives us who are afflicted reason to praise him. Now we turn to verse 7 quickly and following. And what about those who have success in their life? What about those who are accomplished? A committed relationship with God gives the accomplished perspective to praise him. So now we've turned the corner from the afflicted praising God to those who are accomplished and successful. And I dare say that if we live in the United States of America, and we do, we're probably accomplished and successful compared to most people of history. And so the actions of God here demonstrate to us how the accomplished can keep perspective. Right? The, the, the psalmist here in verses 8 and 9 really kind of goes through the creator-provider uh, realities. All right? In other words, that as God provides... I become successful. If God doesn't bring rain showers, I'm not going to eat, right? There's going to be drought and famine, right? If God doesn't cover the cloud, if there's no clouds, right, the same thing. If there's no grass, right, so we see that there. The, the beasts and the birds are not going to be able to flourish, which means I'm going to have a problem getting food. So ultimately, we see that God is provider. God is the one who makes us successful. God is the one who actually brings about accomplishment. The problem is, is that sometimes I am so consumed with what I've done That's the problem. I forget that God is the provider, ultimately. Turn your Bibles real quickly to Job 28. We're not preaching through Job. Right? Pastor's going to do that. But this, this just illustrated, I thought, the psalm very well. Chapter 28 of Job, verse 1. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelt from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness. In other words, he digs a hole that, that ha now has light that never had light before. There's some pretty big accomplishments here. Getting gold, getting silver, getting copper. Right? Verse 9, look at that with me. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountain by the roots. Right? If you've been through, if you've been, uh, through tunnels where... There's just miles of borrowing through the rock. It's an amazing thing to think about that man could actually do that. If you've, it, there, I mean, there are some pits of mines that literally they've, 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 they've taken mountains and they've turned them to nothing, to giant holes. It's incredible. Verse 10, he cuts out channels in the rock. This is man. And, he, and his eye sees every precious thing and he dams up the streams. I mean, if you've been to Hoover Dam, it's an incredible sight. But Job illustrates for us this psalm so well. Because what the glory of man can do can only go so far. So we can get all the riches. But what happens to gold? It it corrupts. Right? What happens to silver? Right? It fades away. Verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? I mean, we can move mountains and we can dig tunnels. But that's not what we need to truly be successful, to truly be accomplished. And where is the place of understanding? Look at verse 28. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil, that is understanding. And so there's a tension regarding what God provides and what man can ultimately do with God's provision. Man oftentimes gets so focused on what God provides that they worship the provision and not the God who provided the provision. Do you understand? That's the point here. That is is the point. Look at verse 10. Going back to Psalm 147. Right? Look at verse 10. 
God does not delight in the strength of the horse. You know, we still have today a delight in the strength of the horse. It's behind a machine, it's behind a combustion engine, or now maybe a, uh, a battery-powered engine, but it's still horsepower, right? We have done amazing things as a civilization with horses, or horsepower, or tools. But God's delight is not in the strength of the horse. And God does not take pleasure. Boy, you could really take this, this verse out of context for never wearing shorts, Right? Right, Vic? But, but God, right, does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. That's a doozy out of context. What's the point? What's the point? Man can have all the ability in the world, but if it's not going to fall down and fear the God of the universe, what is the point? What is the help? What is, what is gained? Nothing. It's unimpressive to God. It's unimpressive to the God of heaven. What is impressive? Verse 11, it's those who fear him. Not fear him as a taskmaster, but fear him as a child fears their parents. And here's another way to put it. Those who wait for his loving kindness, verse 11. And so ultimately, whether you have much or whether you have little, whether you're afflicted or whether you're accomplished, if you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, my friends, you will praise the God of heaven. Amen. Treasure ain't going to get in the way. And trial ain't going to get in the way of you praising Yahweh. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then we see here the last point, and we'll cover this hopefully even quicker and be done. The relationship with God, with God in community, that is for us now, it was Israel, now for us it's the church, gives standing to praise Him. And we see that in verses 12 and following. The actions of God brings blessing to God's people. Verses 13 and 14 really make that plain. We see a corporate focus in verse 12, right? Uh, Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Right? That stands in place of God's people, Israel. Praise your God, O Zion. Right? Again, that, that is more of a, a corporate group kind of uh, a feel. All right, and in terms of, of, of gathering God's people together. And so we really turn the corner in terms of a, a corporate, religious, in this context, state kind of setting, Jerusalem, Zion. All right? And so uh, we have to be careful uh, not to take application too far as the church, but what we do have to understand is that what the psalmist is trying to tell us is, listen, folks, there's fundamentally a reality with God's people who have a personal relationship with him. They're going to praise him because they're going to have an intimate relationship with him even if they're afflicted. They're going to praise him even if they have all the stuff in the world because they're committed, right, to praising the God of heaven. They see where their provision comes from. And here, someone who has a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus is going to be someone who ultimately values the, the, the corporate relationship that he gives to his people, the church. Okay? And so, uh, what I want us to understand, all right, is, is frankly this. I'm just, I, I want to get through it here faster, so I'm going I'm to read this part. Our, our, our mission today as a church is to maintain the unity that God provides this church as we interact with those on a local, state, and national level as salt and light, right? And so, as we see here in verses 13 through 14, we see something. We see he has strengthened the bars of your gates, right? That's still a corporate uh, state feel, okay? He has blessed your sons within you, right? Think stars of the sky, right? Verse 14, he makes peace in your borders. That was in, in Israel's context, that literally was a nation state, okay? 
and he satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. So I want to take just one of these. We're not going to go through all the, these today, but I want to take one of these. He makes peace in your borders and make application for us today. And for us today, we are distinct from Israel, you know that, but for us today, we have to understand that we don't exist in a nation state anymore. There is no Christian nation. There's the church. And Paul really teaches us that the church's borders are transcendent nations, don't they? The church's borders transcendent nations. And so if we want to provide for unity today in a church, we need to be salt and light. And our disposition needs to be one of the Great Commission. If we are willing to remember, as Jesus and Peter remind us so clearly that this world is not our home, today we are displaced peoples, right where we're at, right now. We are sojourners and strangers. We are pilgrims and people waiting for another country. We are citizens of heaven and children of God. And for but a few minutes each week, we get to gather together and enjoy peace within these borders of the church. And one day, it'll be perfect. It's not perfect yet. But one day, it'll be perfect between you and between me. But my point is this. What we can learn from this psalm in, in relation to praising the God of heaven is that God produces an intimate relationship with his people when we have an intimate relationship with him. He produces a relationship that is maintainable between you and me regardless of my personality quirks and all the other things and regardless of yours because we are worshiping the same God of heaven. And so there is peace and that peace is not just based on going to Starbucks together. That peace is not just based on, on liking to hunt or liking sports or whatever it is that you like and I don't or I like and you don't. That peace is based on what I'm going to say here is again, God's character, verse 15, verse 18, verse 19. It's based on his word. He sends forth his commands to the earth. His word runs swiftly, verse 15. Verse 18, he sends forth his word and melts them, talking about the realities of the snow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statues and his ordinances to Israel. And here it is, verse 20. He has not dealt thus with any nation. Right? So we're in Old Testament context, right? Has there been any nation where God has blessed like he's blessed Israel? And the answer, the psalmist says, is no. No, there's not. And what's the basis for this blessing? Is it because they're so amazing? Is it because they got through afflictions okay? And because they're so accomplished in life? We already know, no, no, God did all that. What's the basis for their blessing? And as for his ordinances, verse 20, they have not known them, talking about the other nations, saying that Israel has known them. Israel was given his word. And so what's the basis for peace within our church? What's the, what's the basis for you and for me loving and forgiving and, and figuring each other out? What ultimately calls us in unity many Versus just one to cry out, Hallelujah! What's the basis for that? It's not the carpeting we chose. It's not the beautiful paint that Mr. Spence painted on the walls. It's the Word of God. Amen. That's what brings us here. That's what gels us together. Amen. That's the point of the psalm. So along the way, we have seen that a critical characteristic of a personal relationship with God is praise. We were reminded that, again, as we read the last word of this psalm, right? Verse 20, what are the last words? Praise the Lord, just like the beginning. Alleluia. Alleluia. And we have observed that our hearts, not our circumstances, are responsible for praising God. 
You can have a bad day like losing your home, your place of worship, and living under captivity like the folks here had. But a personal relationship with God sees his care in your restoration and ultimately says hallelujah. You can have a good day like striking it rich with the biggest gold mine known in northeast Ohio uh, during the beginning of the spring planting season, right? By finding that right in your backyard. But a personal relationship with God praises God, not the gold. You can attend church and sing praises at the top of your lungs, but never really be burdened for the mission of God's church found in his word. Really connected here. God isn't interested in mere attendance. He's interested in attention given to his word. A personal relationship with God will result in a missional relationship with God's people. Understand that? A personal relationship with God. That, I, honestly, I don't think that's so far out of context for an application from an Old Testament text as we discover it for ourselves here in the New Testament context. That a personal relationship with God will ultimately result in a missional relationship with God's people. Not singularly, but with God's people. And the point of this psalm is that a personal relationship with God is demonstrated by faithful, consistent praise to him. So may God give us each a worshipful, thankful hallelujah this week as we live. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do pray that you would give uh, give us strength, frankly, in our faith to not see what's immediately in front of us, the dark clouds and, and the afflictions of life, but give us strength to look well beyond that to the comfort and care that you give each one of us, like naming the stars in the sky. Give us strength not to trust in our riches. Those will all burn up and fade away. Give us strength not to not to trust in initials behind our name. They'll mean nothing. Give us strength not to lose sight of what ultimately is important, souls, and ultimately that you are the provider. Give us strength as a body in Jesus Christ, as the body in Jesus Christ, to grow and, to, and to, to, with more and more strength, be fitted together, being mature, being made ready till the day we see you. Lord, we long, we long for you to take your church and make us more and more fitting every day. And at least in this context more and more fitting means we've got to stop complaining and we've got to stop criticizing not that we can't think critically via the word of God no you call us to do that but we've got to be people that are known to have hallelujahs dripping off our lips like sweet honey for your glory in Jesus name we pray amen